flow, creative improvisation, and other altered states of consciousness. This is an Ask Me Anything for episode EF13. I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to episode EF38. Quick spoiler notice, this is an Ask Me Anything looking back at episode EF13, which was season one, episode 11 of the Evolve Faster podcast, titled The Bloody Fingerprint of Creativity. I'm going to read a paragraph from the description on the website just to remind you of the topics covered here. This episode of the Evolve Fester podcast will investigate what art is and how do we perceive the concept of creating art through psychological theories ranging from William James to Carl Jung with neuroscientific backup. The goal is to demystify the long living mystery of what art is and how it's created. In this episode, we're going to try to go through as many of the following questions as we have time for. If you have questions for future episodes, please go to evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss. So how would you define creativity after having written this episode? Is this really how art therapy works? Do we all have the potential to be creative? Did William James really take drugs to experiment with mystical states? Can you explain how improvisation and creativity works? Can we actually kill off parts of or all of ourselves? and replace parts with something better? Why would they lock Eric up? And is he in a flow state when being creative? How would you define creativity after having written this episode? So as this is an ask me anything about creativity, I decided to use one of the tools on the table to help inspire creativity to answer this question. So I gave myself a creative constraint. My constraint was to answer this question using only five paragraphs from the episode itself. These paragraphs are a combination of my thoughts on creativity, as well as my interpretations of several great thinkers' perspectives. So here goes with some slight edits just to make it flow. William James argued, we all crave to realize the hidden potential we have, to achieve it mentally by activating it physically. In other words, dreams, drugs, meditation, religious experience, all of these are different means to the same goal. And no, James didn't think religious people were drug addicts. But he argued that what a person experiences during an emotional religious experience comes from the same source as the sensation a person has when taking drugs or, say, writing a story for that matter. They are all ways to escape the spiritual emptiness that fills our soul. If we were solely rational beings, what would be the purpose of experiencing anything? Art and creativity might just be one of the most human things one can do. Think about it, creativity fuses functionality, rational, irrational, and the feeling of ecstasy all in one. Kant argued that we take pleasure in judging something as beautiful rather than judging the same thing beautiful simply because we find it pleasurable. In other words, we love the process of thinking something is beautiful rather than say, a flower actually being beautiful. Jung concluded that if art, if investigated correctly, is the door to our mind. Even when we improvise, we're following a specific pattern that might not make sense to us, but it's logical to our mind. Our experiences and our past situations, fundamentally our whole life, directly influence what we create. This isn't limited to creating art, but everything about our lives. Creativity is not a gift given to a select few. It's a difficult to master, acquired skill that develops through consistent practice. You simply have to show up every day and do the work, even when it feels like there's nothing good in your head. Eureka moments 
of creative genius are a result of consistency and practice creativity, not some divine gift. So there you go. Nailed it. Um, I could try to, I, I started restating all these things to answer this question. And then I realized that we'd already put a lot of work into wording these things and summarizing these opinions as good as we could. So I thought that restating my thoughts on creativity here would have ruined the effect of some of what we'd put in the episode. So I thought it'd be interesting to try to do it this way. But hopefully that adds some color to to my, my feelings on creativity after uh, working on the episode. Is this actually how art therapy works? Well, it goes without saying, I'm in no way a doctor or a professional psychologist or psychiatrist. If this specific form could work in real life, well, it depends, but art has been a major part in helping people cope with their problems for a long time. I believe the early forms of art therapy were psychoanalytical, where the patient draws something and the therapist interprets the work to benefit the patient. And since then, art therapy has evolved in many directions. It's essentially, to my understanding, using art as a form of expression to maybe pull things out that might be hindering you that perhaps you're not able to easily express verbally. Many famous painters who suffered from heavy depression often said that art was what kept them sane. And I believe the same was applied to Van Gogh. If I want to butcher that name, Van Gogh. Um, let's take the idea even further by reiterating another point that we tried to make in the episode. Anything you like doing, anything that creates that satisfying feeling in your guts can be considered art. It doesn't have to be painting or composing or writing or anything of the sort that society considers to be art. Art can be baking, fixing cars, saving people's lives in the ER. If you enjoy it, doesn't it make it kind of a self-therapy, a self-art therapy? So I would imagine the meditative freedom that comes from creative engagement alone is enough to put you in a state that's not too unlike a flow state or even a light psychedelic experience or meditative state where the brain's default mode network slows or even shuts down, allowing you to separate from your judgmental ego for a while. And this is a very liberating and addicting feeling to get out of your own head. So we all need to get out of our own way more often to enjoy living without the constant judging that we do of ourselves. Do we all have the potential to be creative? I'd like to think so. I suppose I don't know, but it doesn't matter what I think. How can you know until you try? Like really try, you know, give it everything you've got. I'll also say this, if I had to bet a yes or no on this question, I'd put all my money on yes. Because I think you'd agree that although humans are all different, we're all mostly the same. In fact, we're something like 95 to 98% similar to the DNA in chimps, depending on which nucleotides are chosen and which website you're on. Is it evolution friendly or creation friendly? <laughs> but we're almost identical to one another. I mean, the, the, the similarity in DNA in between humans is shockingly close to one another. So we have the same stuff, just slightly different switches in our genetics. And of course, fairly different environments across the globe determining what gets activated. So we're all based on the same basic blueprints. And I think somewhere in those blueprints, it says you have the freedom to be creative with the side note, but it won't be easy. And that's to me the key. If you expect creativity to be easy or that or you think that it comes easy for anyone who creates things that you love or love to read, write, listen, watch, then I think you'll likely quit. And 
That, I think, is more likely the reason that we have creativity on the decline and not on the rise. Because I could tell you it's not easy, but it is worth the pain. And I don't know anyone who creates things who thinks it's easy. It does get easier with once you've changed your mindset, accept the work that's required and just do it consistently. Did William James really take drugs to experiment with mystical states? I believe James holds the nickname the nitrous oxide philosopher. I'm guessing he didn't get that because his hobby was dentistry, chemistry, or because he had a thing for laughing. It's interesting to notice that the so-called American psychedelic movement began around the time that James rose to fame with an anonymous article. And if you're wondering who the author was, it was James. Although it was, it sounds silly, he, he reviewed a pamphlet saying that a sort of simulation of the religious or philosophical experience could be found by intoxicating with nitrous oxide. So first of all, don't do that. On the risk-reward continuum, it's a silly drug experience that has negligible upside to even bother evaluating the risks and downside. But second, if you're familiar with his work, with James's work, you can, you can see the connection and the reason why he began to experiment and create tons of work on this topic. It's tricky to put drugs and religion into the same sentence or research, of course, but if you compare them or even take a look at the more ancient forms of religion, the religious and drug experience aren't so distant worlds from each other. And James was on the right track, I think. Both are strong experiences of finding a supposed truth and the same can be said for the rush of creating something like art. The feeling that you're where you're supposed to be, even if you might not like the place. Can you explain how improvisation and creativity works? I remember when I first learned that music schools teach improvisation, it seemed kind of silly to me. You know, how can you learn to perform in the moment, in improvisation? How can there be a skill for randomizing? But then one of the first creative endeavors that clued me in personally into the creative improvisation being a learned skill has been playing in a band where we perform kind of jammy music, rock-themed, that has improvisation sections. And we'd somewhat rehearse in the improv parts with just enough structure to know kind of how it would start and hopefully we're, to remember where it would end to define kind of the creative constraints of the section. And, you know, usually the, the key of the song is going to be where it's going to be improv. But then it was individual improvisation styles. I'm one of the lead guitar players. And what we knew or didn't know from there would just turn into something unique within those structures. So in also in writing for this podcast, it took me years and years of writing things that at the moment felt good, felt like good writing. And then I'd read them back a week or a month or a year later and think, oh God, that's an awful even nine month ago versions of the podcast today look silly to me. They changed so much from month to month as we evolved each version. I mean, the current, the final versions that were published aren't perfect in any way, but they finally felt like my own fingerprint that definitely required lots of blood, sweat, and tears. And I no longer hated them when I read and looked back, which was a great sign of progress, actually. So improvisation although it is an act in the moment, is based on what we've experienced and learned previously. So why will one musician feel more comfortable improvising in a pentatonic scale instead of a 
classic major or minor, probably because of his experience with the pentatonic, and it's also easier, so he probably may know it better. So although improvisation is done without a specific plan, and you're still doing it within the boundaries of your knowledge and skills, and creativity can be learned. So improvisation is creativity based on what you've learned so far. So the more you learn, the more you can improvise, explore, and create. And ultimately, the more rules you know, down to your core, your soul, the easier you'll then be able to break those rules and create something unique, which is where you start getting, you know, things like listening to Miles Davis. You know, knowing nothing, you'll likely just create junk. Can we actually kill off parts of, or all of, ourselves and replace them with something better? Well, I love this question because to me, this is ultimately what the episode was investigating. You know, alongside the core questions of exploring how each of us finds our own creativity. So let me quote Dr. Harper from the episode to give some context for anyone who may not recall this part. So she said the following in her letter to Sid near the end. At first, it was odd to me that the bloody fingerprint kept coming back for him. But as it continued to resurface, I began to wonder if it represented this metaphorical death suicide that we all need to put ourselves through to shed the uncreative masks which society makes us wear. So in the episode, I call it killing off the old Eric because the story is supposed to be a drastic and therefore memorable metaphor. But to apply this to yourself, I maybe wouldn't call it killing off parts. It's more like a transformation in the way of how much you can actually have an impact on guiding it the way you want. So it's difficult to say if there are actual hard resets outside extreme cases like amnesia. I might even argue there isn't. Because as long as you remember, you're building on foundations of the past. There can't possibly be that tomorrow you wake up and do a complete mind reset. But you can try to loosen it up and get more options to mold it. At the very end of the episode, I tried to reiterate my hypothesis on this by challenging you as the listener as follows. What if you could decide one morning to kill off the part of your identity that isn't living the life you want, and in its place, replace it with a new one? And by restating it here, I challenge you once again. Haha, <laughs> tricky, huh? Why would they lock Eric up? This is a good question, and I wasn't surprised I got it. So, indeed, why would they? Without spoiling the story too much for the possible listeners who decided to listen to the AMA before the episode, I'll say that Eric is an extremely lost soul, both in a mental and literal sense. He hit rock bottom and then went straight through it. So the irony is he doesn't even remember the horror, um, but the people around him, more specifically the medical staff does. And after making the same mistake, the medical staff saw a diamond in the dirt, this amnesia that he has this time, a possibility for a fresh start. So he got locked up. He was a threat to himself. And more importantly, because Dr. Harper hopes that she may have found a way to help him get out of his maze that he's in in his head exactly when he was in his deepest parts. So because this time there's a, there's a comment made that it's his fourth failed suicide attempt in the episode, and this time no one came to claim him. The people in the ward felt it was in, within their rights and responsibility to keep him there and keep him safe while they tried to heal him. Now, I don't know if this is, could actually happen in you know, the, real, the real world, but it helped to facilitate the story that, that they were able to keep him there. And, and I didn't have to reveal what I was trying to hide. So 
I'll say this. So when I did some very final last minute pre-recording changes of the podcast, which I talked about in the last episode, I had to remove something that explained more why Eric was still locked up. And it pained me to do that at first, but the payoff was worth it. So I really wanted that early WTF reveal when the cage door slams shut and we realize he's in a mental ward as, as opposed to just being on the couch of his shrink's office, which is how I made it seem. So I hope that had the impact I was intending. But when I made that change to, to be able to have that first um, reveal, I had to remove comments about him being a threat to himself because if I'd done that, it would have ruined the effect and you would have known that he was you know, not on just a shrink's couch. So this forced me to be okay with knowing that my audience was intelligent enough to close the gaps on these loose ends, you know, on purposely left open-ended issues. But as a writer without, you know, decades of experience, it's, it's a hard leap to get comfortable with. I'll speak for myself at least. After the fact though, I felt good about it. And since I only got this question once, I think the leap of faith paid off. And based on the context that was provided with the question, even this listener, I believe, was just trying to confirm their understanding of what happened. In season two and beyond, I'm hoping to find more ways to challenge listeners to put the pieces together more and more on their own. Is he in a flow state when he's being creative and writing in this episode? Well, that's a good question. I, I think I'd have to expand the story to actually write that in a little more, as if an hour wasn't long enough, you're probably asking. But yes, it was my intention as the writer of this, that he's tapping into a flow state. And in the future, he's learning more and more to, to get into that. And I kind of hint to that in the, in the episode. It's part of what helps him heal by kind of going all in with this creative writing and art therapy that Dr. Harper encourages him to engage in. So if you're unfamiliar with what flow is, I've mentioned it a couple times here, I should have explained it earlier, but it's a psychological term coined by a guy named Mikai Csikszentmihalyi to describe a state of deep focus and when you're completely involved in a specific activity. It's, you, know, you hear about it and used with different terms in the zone and sports and you know music, arts, all kinds of creative pursuits. I'm actually planning an episode on the topic specifically, so more about that in, in, the, in the future. So this brings us to the end of the AMA which was an AMA for episode EF13. Um, hope you enjoyed it. And I hope this covered most of the questions that were asked. I tried to summarize them by picking the ones that got to the heart of the, the key issues. So this is the last AMA of, uh, of season one as well. So from here, we move on to season two. So we look forward to seeing you when that starts. And thanks for listening. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content 
and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.